Welcome to Health Equity Now. I'm your host, John Gorman. The original concept for Nightingale Partners was born a couple of years ago at the outset of the authority from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for Medicare Advantage plans to offer new supplemental benefits that would help address social determinants of health and provide uh, better supplemental benefit coverage for the chronically ill in particular. And the idea came because in the wake of that authority, there was no new money that was administered by CMS to help pay for these benefits. And uh, at Nightingale, we, you know, had just become enamored with this whole idea of social determinant interventions. And the idea that the plans would be very slow to adopt these benefits was scary for us because we knew these are benefits and services that uh, Medicare beneficiaries needed desperately, and this was even pre-pandemic, and those needs are even far worse today. But that with no new money and with most plans operating on the basis of a zero premium product, it would mean that every dollar that they invested in these new types of benefits could potentially threaten their competitive position in the marketplace. And so the idea for Nightingale as a fund that would bring external investment capital to pay for these benefits and de-risk the offering of them for this industry was born. And I knew from the very first idea that we had this, that it was going to be through the chief actuary's office of a health plan if we were gonna get anywhere. And that what I needed at the kitchen cabinet was going to be my long, long time actuaries at uh, Wakely Consulting. And my good friend, Tim Murray, was the OG of that kitchen cabinet for Nightingale. So I'm thrilled here for our inaugural episode to invite the OG, Tim Murray, of Wakely Consulting to us. Great to have you, Tim. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Man, it's been like over 20 years since I've been working with your firm, with Julia Lambert and Brian Weibel and the gang going back to my early days at Gorman Health Group. And you guys were among the first among the big actuarial firms, Tim, that really embraced the idea of these supplemental benefits and the fact that uh, the research in the field of social determinant interventions was robust enough that plans could literally take it to the bank in the bid, bid process. And one of the reasons why I really uh, needed you guys at the, uh, the, the kitchen cabinet as we were putting Nightingale together was this recognition. Now, here we are, Tim, four years later after these benefits were authorized and we're still seeing relatively little uptake among what, what we now refer to as SSBCI, of course, the special supplemental benefits for the chronically ill. And so we're thrilled to have you on to kind of talk about this phenomenon and where you see this all going with us. Um, certainly as a guy who spends most of his time, especially this time of year, uh, in the bid process with plans. Um, certainly you've been watching this huge increase in the number of plans over last year that are now offering the SSBCIs in some form. We saw the number of plans offering a meal benefit jump from 71 in 2020 to almost 400 this year, Tim. We saw uh, Pest control, which I thought was one of the most innovative benefits to come out of last year and very meaningful to uh, vulnerable beneficiaries. That increased from 118 plans to 208, 
a social needs benefit went from 34 plans to 227 plans this year. So we're seeing huge increases like that one in social needs benefit. That was a 568% increase. But Tim, we're still only talking about maybe 18% of Medicare Advantage plans offering these types of benefits in any form. Um, what, have, what have you seen in your work on the bids with the plans uh, for why there's just such a lag in the plans uptake and offering these benefits on any sort of significant scale yet? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say uh, part of the reason why we see such slow uptake so far, uh, maybe the key reason is when these new flexibilities and new options were introduced, uh, we didn't see any incremental source of, of funding as you've uh, alluded to in your, in your opening remarks. And so in the absence of, of that additional funding, what we see is a sort of lagged effect where plans are consistently going back to the, the old reliable benefits, the dental vision, hearing, OTC, uh, and being a little bit slower to accept that uh, some of these more innovative benefits may, may be driving things like cost savings, things like risk adjustment accuracy and optimization, uh, various star rating measure improvement opportunities. Yeah. So I think the, the funding dynamics are uh, a key part of it. Uh, another thing is uh, just plans are, are generally uh, and historically uh, slow to wade into the sea of uncertainty with, with some <laughs> of these things. Uh, and in particular, and I'll acknowledge and be self-aware as an actuary, uh, the element of uncertainty is, is something that makes us all anxious. And we may see some robust studies out in the market that suggest uh, there's potential for multiples ROI to, of, of the investment that you put into some yeah. of these benefits, Absolutely. but not necessarily on a Medicare Advantage population, not necessarily on a longitudinal study. And so, you know, the actuarial department has sometimes been known in some organizations as the department of no. Uh, <laughs> I think increasingly over time, as these innovations uh, start to take hold, You'll, you'll see us uh, trying to find excuses to, to say yes, uh, understanding that no study is perfect and that uh, unless this innovation is implemented and tracked accurately, it's, it's going to be a challenge to, to, to really ramp up. Uh, yeah. Tim, we know that you know, CMS not providing any additional funding for these types of benefits was obviously a big barrier. In your bid work with the plans, how much do you think the notion of offering these types of benefits, especially for the chronically ill and for the low income to meet basic human needs. How much concern have you heard expressed among the plans that that's just gonna be a magnet for adverse selection? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say uh, in this day and age with the dynamics and reimbursement structure in play in, in Medicare Advantage, uh, we have a lot less dialogue around concerns for adverse selection. Uh, our perspective is, is generally um, not for every single member necessarily, but generally speaking for uh, most cohorts of members, uh, the risk adjustment uh, that comes along with members of certain uh, diagnostic buckets and states, uh, in most cases is sufficient to cover uh, the, the cost of serving those, those beneficiaries. And it's 
perhaps these types of innovations that may make it uh, even, even more uh, robust and sufficient to both serve, do good for the member, and, and leave some room for margin and incremental investment in the future. Yeah. It's interesting to me because you see often the plans that have been in the vanguard on these types of innovative benefits for low-income people and for the chronically ill um, tend to be smaller regional players that that are you know the, in the real vanguard in offering these types of services. I, I think of folks like Scan Health Plan or Fallon in Massachusetts or UPMC in Pittsburgh, which has been incredibly innovative around these things. These are not huge organizations. Many of them are nonprofits, don't have near the checkbook weight as some of the big nationals. And yet they've really been leaders on these types of benefits so far. Um, is, it, is it purely just a, a, a wallet size uh, matter that's, uh, that makes us a barrier to more plans accepting this? Or where do you think the logic lies for the bigger plans too? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've seen you know, mission-driven organizations uh, like a, a few of the ones you've, you've mentioned um, take a, an aggressive stride into these innovations. Yeah. That comes through the SSBCI benefits that you've referenced. It comes through the value-based insurance design or VBID model, yeah. uh, which, which organizations are increasingly participating in across the country. Uh, I, I think there's a, a mission element uh, to the appetite for those community, local organizations and in, in exploring these, these options. Uh, I think there's, there's also an, an element of, in some cases, organizations that have a Medicaid block of business, uh, perhaps having a more robust evidence base to show that a transportation benefit, uh, a meal benefit may drive clinical outcomes and cost savings uh, and, and therefore they're more comfortable uh, entering into the space of social determinants of health type type benefits. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes it's the the data, sometimes it's it's the mission, uh, and I, I think in in some cases it's just being overwhelmed by the the, the number of options out there that that precludes organizations from right. from jumping in. But it's interesting to me because it always does come come down to margin or mission, right? In so many cases, right? And the plans that have been early adopters of these types of benefits have largely been driven by mission. When we know the research shows that these types of interventions drive margin. I mean, part of the reason we jumped into this as investors is the consistent three to eight X return on investment that you see from, in, from offering new benefits like food security or housing security or transportation benefit or the assignment of a, a community health worker, or as you see with um, benefit enrollment companies like in UNO that sign folks up for uh, other social welfare benefit programs they're, they're, not, they're eligible for, but not enrolled in yet. All of those interventions have at least a $2,200 per member per year uh, re, uh, savings associated with them. And when they're stacked, they compound. And yet so many plans seem to still be just sticking their toes in this water if they're in the water or anywhere near the water at all, Tim. Like, I think a really cool approach was what Anthem's done the last couple of years where they have very purposely been engaged in this experimentation with, you know, how many days of home health assistance can we offer somebody? 
And can we give them an allowance on home modifications or pest control? And to see which of those types of benefits on a sort of a small scale yielded a result. Have you, have you seen more examples of that? And in, in, especially in this last bid cycle that you're preparing for now? Yeah, certainly seen an increasing level of interest. I know the, the Anthem Essential Extras uh, option, which includes a bunch of SSBCI benefits nested yep. within it, uh, is, is a sort of cool experimental ground, uh, not only for entertaining and exploring the efficacy of, of these innovative benefits, but also testing out which of the benefits members are, are migrating to. So uh, which ones that they value highest if they have a, a menu of op options to choose from. Right. And uh, just recently went through a, a consortium uh, effort uh, with, a, with the Health Plan uh, Alliance. And uh, we see uh, both within that uh, enterprise and, and more broadly in the industry, lots of interest in these sort of flexible cards that can be deployed uh, you know, with SSBCI benefits nested underneath them. Uh, that will enable members to decide upon what is the benefit, what is that enhancement that is most meaningful to them. Uh, is it service dog support? Is it pest control? Is it transportation for non-medical needs? Is it grocery delivery? All of those things, um, by, by pr presenting that optionality to the member, presenting that personal, personalization to the member, uh, really provide an interesting data gathering opportunity. Uh, so, so that that has been some some exciting stuff to see, and you know, with organizations like that pushing forward with with these sorts of innovations, you know, the the rest of the uh, the industry tends to catch up and move faster. There may be some of the uh, local regional health plans that are a year, two years behind, based on scale or based on other uh, dynamics. Uh, but increasingly, we're seeing a, a an appetite, and there, you know, I'd be lying if I if I said I didn't think there was an element of, of FOMO, you know, fear of missing out yeah, on all this funny. innovation. So I think yeah. that's a real dynamic as well. It's funny, Tim, because watching how slowly this is rolling out in Medicare Advantage, um, relative to how this is absolutely and utterly mainstream, these types of benefits in Medicaid, and certainly among Medicaid plans and in some states with more progressive Medicaid programs, these types of benefits are actually written into the core benefit design. Um, you know, that really where we're seeing the greatest uptake around these types of benefits in Medicare is among special needs plans. Um, and you'd certainly expect that given the focus of their product design and the populations that they're, they're zeroed in on. And certainly among, you just mentioned the Health Plan Alliance, those are the, uh, the largely the hospital-sponsored health plans in Medicare Advantage. Um, you, you see much greater uptake among those serving duals and among those that are provider-sponsored ostensibly because as a payvider, if you will, they're closer to the patients and they see the effect of these types of benefits and services more daily, right? Uh, agree, absolutely. And does that... Um, does that surprise you that we're still at only about 18% of MA plans offering these types of benefits still now here four years later? It, it does um, to some degree, but I, uh, in other ways, it, it doesn't. You know, the pace of change that we've observed over, yeah. over many years tends to be slow for, for a lot of uh, health, health insurers and, and 
you know, just health plans in, in general, you know, of course we like the trend that, that we see in the uh, exponential rise that we've seen year on year and hope that that will continue into the future uh, in part because these benefits make sense, right? Like putting aside the, the studies that have existed for many years to suggest that there's the potential for, for ROI uh, or that there has been ROI proven in, in other markets, say Medicaid managed care. It makes sense intuitively as a human being that these innovations could drive really meaningful change for the cost profile of uh, these beneficiaries and for the healthcare ecosystem yeah. at large. So uh, I'm encouraged, uh, you know, maybe, maybe disappointed so far, but encouraged by the by the progress, and uh, am anxious for for folks to not only continue to innovate, but to very actively and deliberately collect data that enables iteration and a feedback loop that says, hey, you know what, that pest control benefit, uh, thought it was going to be worth this, ended up you know, worth X, turned out uh, to be worth Y. Uh, not to say that those are simple exercises, because we yeah. have increasingly confounding variables, but I like the idea of shifting from a mindset of, uh, let's try this out to let's evaluate how effective uh, the actual offering ha has been for, for the population. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, when we look at, at the benefits, again, we, we brushed on it a little bit at the top, but the stuff that's really increased, you know, that I find really encouraging, 445% increase in meal benefits. And the big change that I saw there year over year, Tim, tell me uh, what you make of this, is that we saw a big movement from episodic meal benefits to of a more permanent standing, like a monthly benefit uh, that, was, uh, that was disconnected from an episode of care. For instance, my mother's enrolled in Aetna's MA plan in Maine. She was hospitalized four times last year uh, for a variety of reasons. And every time she got back from the hospital, there was two weeks worth of frozen food from Aetna waiting for her on her doorstep so she didn't have to make choices between food and medicine. We saw a big jump relatively because these are still very small numbers that only about 18% of the plans doing this. But we saw a big jump away from those episode-based meal benefits to now say a monthly allotment uh, for healthy foods or you know getting you checked into a, a mobile farmer's market or something like that with um, a certain amount of food that you could, you could count on on a monthly basis, whether or not you were hospitalized or discharged from a nursing home. You seeing that too? Absolutely, yeah. The organization that comes to mind is, is Health Partners Plans in, in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. They've had a, a food as medicine program uh, alongside MANA that has been, they've been very vocal and proud of for, for many years, uh, serving uh, vulnerable beneficiaries. and. You know, you don't need to be a, a New Year's resolution uh, person to understand how effective, you know, consistent, healthy diets and, you know, uh, th that foundation is for, for healthcare. So I think the, the point that you raised, shifting from episodic, the two-week meal option, right. to a more sustained recurring solution is part of a broader uh, theme of trying to provide the, the foundation for, for health 
uh, to support these these beneficiaries rather than just responding to the the, the crisis. Right. There's so many uh, SDOH social determinants of, of health that, if managed proactively, can limit the, pos the possibility or probability of, of those episodes. And so, you know, there's there's you know beyond meals, you you think about things like uh, broadband access. And, yeah transportation and uh, all that. of these things yeah. that are more proactive uh, in, in nature uh, that can be really, really powerful. And that's a really, you know, within the meal benefit, it's sort of a microcosm for what we, you know, kind of hope to see in the, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me what, what you saw on the social needs benefit in particular, that one went, went up 568% year yeah. over year. Uh, to my mind, that mostly entails helping beneficiaries sign up for other social welfare programs they're eligible for, like food stamps, like, you know, low-income heating assistance and the like. What else have you seen around that social needs benefit that would explain that kind of explosion in offering? Yeah, we see uh, a lot of attention uh, given to uh, social isolation and also, uh, you know, just to making sure that uh, beneficiaries who are already eligible for programs in the community are enrolled in, and taking advantage of them. Uh, I know Cigna's had a bunch of studies out on the cost of loneliness. Yeah. Uh, they, they have indices that they've generated and are continuing to report on. Uh, so isolation and loneliness, particularly throughout the, the pandemic has been a, a big focus area. Uh, and I would expect it uh, to continue to, to be in the, in the future. Uh, organizations like PAPA. Yeah, I was just gonna PAPA. Turn yeah, so they they and and other organizations that that compete with them, uh, it's sort of a, a race to uh, address the member in the the low acuity setting, oftentimes the home, thinking about things like you know like with Papa's model, uh, visiting someone in their home uh, using you know maybe somebody who aspires to be a, a med student uh, at a at a relatively low hourly rate, right. identifying. What are the fall risks in the home? Uh, making sure that the person, particularly in COVID times, is familiar with accessing telehealth on their on their phone. There's so many things that uh, an organization can accomplish by driving that engagement in that setting, yeah. and then it can, you know, at, at its most fullest form, uh, drive a bunch of other uh, clinical protocol and uh, care management uh, efforts uh, when, when kind of at, at full scale. So that's a hugely interesting and, and obviously, as you observed, a lot of momentum happening in, in that particular space. Yeah, absolutely. That one's right. Andrew, Andrew Parker's an old friend and Papa is, is the, the one of the startups of the year in my mind um, from last year. He's just killing it. And yeah, recognizing that social isolation and loneliness, especially among seniors is the equivalent of smoking 15 to 20 cigarettes a day in terms of uh, its poor health effect uh, on the senior. And then of course, loneliness, isolation is the biggest driver of depression, which is of course, as all actuaries know, a, a, a 4X multiplier of the costs of other chronic conditions. So dealing with social isolation and loneliness and depression really helps to reduce the, the overall cost of say um, a depressed diabetic being four times as expensive as just a, a diabetic. That's a really great one to point out there, Tim. Thanks for that. Tim, we always know that benefit design is an art form. 
and a process and that generally it reflects you know what the plans want to see in terms of the enrollment that those benefits would would attract so you know i like to think that most plans design their benefits in medicare advantage with with leisure suit larry in mind right you know he's the the new age in beneficiary relatively healthy he's out on the golf course three four days a week he's popping a couple of viagras a week relatively able-bodied he wants that gym membership he wants that silver sneakers so he can go meet more of his ladies you know that this is not the guy that you know is really in need of ssbci or a pest control benefit and that the plans you know continue to chase leisure suit larry with these sorry worried well benefits look i'm as heartened as anybody to see things like vision hearing and dental go mainstream in medicare advantage supplemental benefits but when we're still lagging like this it still seems like there's that concern of the adverse selection hanging out there and that if we offer benefits that would alleviate poverty we're just going to get more poor people to sign up yeah, I would, I would say maybe historically the notion of, of anti-selection concerns and curating a benefit package uh, that may, may attract a, the profile of a, a member that, that you reference um, may have characterized the historical bid processes. I, I am encouraged by uh, sort of a shifting mindset that I've, that I've seen over the past number of years towards understanding that serving the lower income, chronically ill patients, serving them well, documenting their conditions well, enrolling them in care management programs and seeing them through. Uh, I'm encouraged that, uh, that there's less of a concern over anti-selection and that, you know, there's more of a, a focus, honestly, on top line and, you know, getting enrollment growth in, right. especially in the market right now where an MA life uh, is, is worth uh, quite a, a pretty penny on the open market. Yeah. Um, so encouraged uh, very much by, by what, I've, what I've observed in, in, in that regard. And I'd also point to uh, as an example, the insulin, the Part D senior savings model, the insulin yeah. savings yeah. model, as the participation that, that we saw or are seeing now in that program, I think it's, it's something like staggering. 1600, yeah, That's 1,600 plans. 1,600 yeah. plans, yeah. yeah. So that, that just tells me that the MA community, the MA plan community at large feels like, heck, we can manage the diabetic population well, we, you know, that risk adjustment is, is sufficient uh, to enable us to serve this population effectively. And, you know, we want those diabetics and we probably, you know, want uh, a number of other chronic conditions because that's where the opportunity is. That's where the, that's where the uh, beneficiary issues uh, can be addressed. And that's where the, the cost curve can be bent. Keep in mind that the benchmark calculations in MA are they're based on a historical five-year period right a bunch of uh, adjustments that happen and trended forward so where's the cost coming from in those benchmarks it's from this chronically ill population if you can serve them better serve them more effectively more efficiently as well then that's where the that's where the magic happens that's yeah. where the innovation happens that's where yeah. the margin comes so 
uh, I, I'm encouraged by the level of participation that we saw in that program and and uh, other CMMI programs that are that are uh, in the in the hopper, if you will. Yeah, it's a great point, Tim. And even you know now, especially as we're sailing through year two of the pandemic, you know seniors stuck at home as lonely and isolated as ever. It certainly seems like benefits that extend the reach of the plan into home and community-based settings uh, are really speaking to the moment. We've awakened in our first year at Nightingale to sort of the new super social determinant health being broadband access, which you, you touched on earlier. Uh, and that's really underpinning so many of the interventions that we're doing because we're finding upwards of 50% of duels and other vulnerable seniors don't have basic broadband access. Uh, or if they have it, they don't have a plan with enough data that enables them to participate in continuity of care initiatives or to go through a Byzantine vaccine sign-up process. Um, we see um, very little in the way of in-home support services in the benefits for this year, uh, very little in in-home health aids, home modifications, still pest control, very, uh, very little. Where do you see these benefits going? Are you, are you having different conversations this bid season as the pandemic wears on around what more needs to happen in the home? So I would say the conversations around uh, these benefits, these what I would call kind of foundational uh, SDOH benefits like, like broadband, yeah. um, they happened mostly in the context of the acute pandemic circumstances of, of last year. Right. You had seniors that were isolated. You had plans that even just getting a hold of a member is sometimes the biggest challenge that they that they face. Uh, so certainly, and you also had a lot of deferred care, which broadly speaking, at least for the second and third quarter of last year in 2020, uh, brought MLRs down. So plans were not only looking to do the right thing because it was the right thing, but also uh, to mitigate what would otherwise be rebates back to the, the, the federal government. So. Um, that I think is, is what drove uh, and accelerated a lot of these discussions around other uh, benefits, in, including broadband. We're back kind of into an environment of, of, of anxiety, I'd say, about fourth quarter being challenged, uh, deferred care in 2020, leading to risk adjustment challenges in 2021. Uh, so so we, there's been a little bit of a, a rewind, uh, I suppose, understandable from a financial perspective on some of the, the these discussions. But, you know, we try to encourage organizations to think about their benefit package and their solutions over a long term longitudinal period. We know that 2022 is set up to be a favorable uh, rate environment, or at least a, it's a it's a significant uh, bump up in. Uh, and, and benchmark rate, um, at least relative to recent historical years. Uh, so um, hoping that, that organizations will consider uh, maybe 2021 is, is a challenge year due to, to risk adjustment, but 2022 uh, may leave uh, some opportunity for 
funding the innovation that they uh, that organizations always always wanted to, to consider. Mm -hmm. Another point that I'd raise on, on the broadband front is uh, CMS has clarified that concurrent audio video interactions are permissible as sources of, of diagnoses for risk adjustment. Sure. And so uh, there is a, a revenue accuracy component of, of this. Obviously there's a care management component. There's a doing the right thing component. Yeah. Uh, and, and hopefully all of those uh, strategic levers, of course there's a star rating and quality uh, improvement component. Hopefully those four kind of strategic levers drive folks to, to more actively consider uh, these sort of broad investments, uh, societal investments, because you know certainly makes sense that they would have a huge impact on uh, on these beneficiaries. Tim, it also raises the question around caregivers, which have been stressed like never before during this pandemic. I certainly have family members that I'm actively engaged in caring for and have many friends and, and relations that are also directly engaged in caregiving for an elderly or vulnerable family member. We see precious little though in caregiver support and MA benefits yet, though it's it's kind of de rigueur in, in Medicaid. And in fact, even in some state Medicaid programs, they actually give stipends to family members or, or neighbors for ongoing non-skilled care support in the home. Where do you see that going, especially in, in year two of the pandemic? Do you see there being uh, any greater offering around caregiver support and Medicare Advantage plans? Yeah, I think, I think it'll see more momentum in the, in the future. Uh, and I think the toll that the pandemic has, has taken on, on caregivers uh, of, of all ages is you know, going to be pronounced. And, um, and they have some significant uh, cost consequences. Uh, not to make light of the situation, my wife and I have a four and six-year-old at, at home, and the you know the the toll that homeschooling, hybrid learning, uh, you know, handling a a, a full-time employment as as an attorney, uh, the toll it's taken on on my wife to a greater degree, but but me as well has has been uh, fa fairly intense. And thinking about the, the more complicated needs of, of elderly folks as compared to my rambunctious uh, <laughs> uh, boys at home uh, tells me that, that this is, uh, and, and you know, feeling the effect on, on uh, you know, my wife and I and, and many other parents in our, in our peer group um, tells me that if, if you're caring for an elderly with complicated healthcare uh, conditions, Gosh, that's going to take a real, uh, a real serious toll. Uh, I've I've seen uh, observed organizations. I was out at the uh, J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference this past year, uh, also at the the Satellite Startup Health uh, Conference. Uh, met a few innovators out there that are focused on caregiver support as their primary solution, mm -hmm. and uh, I expect that to to be a, a growth area into the future. Uh, for sure, um, especially given the the tangible personal effect that uh, the pandemic has had on so many so many folks. Tim, from an actuary's standpoint, does our basic business premise here at Nightingale about bringing external capital to the dance to help pay for 
these types of benefits and services. Does that really still hold true? And do you see that as still having a great role uh, in the industry as the uh, you know, first offering of its kind to help defray the cost of offering these things and to encourage plans to uh, offer these types of benefits on a much broader scale? Yeah, what I, what I would say is that um, as encouraged as I am about the progress we've seen so far on a percentage annual CAGR basis over what, two years since these things really launched, yeah. um, there's a long way to go. And the practical reality for a bid process, you know, we're, we're heavy into the bid process for 2022 already, right. is that there's only so much movement that can happen each year, right? You have uh, you know, finite funding and you have a finite time horizon over which decisions are, are being made. These innovations, uh, you know, certainly uh, feel like, and I think there's historical evidence, that they can drive significant ROI. The question is, how quickly does that ROI manifest? And does the decision maker behind the benefit design for this next year, for just 2022, can I get behind a massive uh, investment in a social determinant of, of health-oriented benefit? Uh, I may be more reluctant as a, a decision maker uh, to throw all of the funding or even to take a, a a loss on paper for a year in order to do so. So without a doubt, I, I think I see um, the broad investments. You know, we, we saw uh, CVS Aetna, uh, you know, touting an investment in housing uh, yeah. for, for low-income folks. Uh, investments, broad investments uh, in, in things like broadband and, and housing and pest control. Uh, particularly if, if coming from, from other sources outside of, of, of the bid, um, there is, you know, I think an opportunity to drastically accelerate. You know, we can, we can talk about this progress in one year increments. We're going to move it, you know, 100% every year. We're, we're still going to, it's, it's going to be a while before we get to, uh, you know, to, to full scale. You know, the broad investments that I think uh, you've been talking about uh, with your enterprise, you know, uh, feels like can can maybe accelerate things five years uh, ahead, uh, that's and that's cool. why it's exciting, right? Like as yeah. I seek data to uh, evaluate the impact of of these sort of cool innovations, uh, that data is is still being developed. I'm excited about the prospect of broad investments happening and being able to you know work with our teams of of actuaries and and data scientists to evaluate. Okay, this really had an impact. Or maybe it didn't. Uh, it certainly would make sense that it would. Appreciate that, man. It's always good to hear from, you know, the smartest guy in the business doing these bids that uh, there's an ever-growing role for external capital and helping underwrite the costs of, of these new innovative benefits. And frankly, to de-risk this for the industry so that more of us will be doing it on a much broader basis and that we can actually test the effectiveness of this in, in real time uh, by getting these things out there and instead of relying just on these little peer-reviewed studies that uh, so many of us are, have, have been uh, making a business out of. Tim, this has been a wonderful conversation, brother. Always appreciative of your insights and your time and uh, really thankful you were able to join us today. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Have a, have a wonderful day and great weekend. Thanks, brother. You too.